We on? Yes. Well, you heard, you heard Frank praying for Tom Urbino, who's sick this morning, as I think many of you have been, or families are in the middle of it. Uh, I don't think it was mentioned, Dr. Dave and his wife will be coming back tonight, so we've missed them the last two weeks. You have your bulletin outline, your Bible. Turn to Matthew 18, 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep... And one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this challenging text. Open our hearts, our minds to be guided by your spirit to understand better and to apply it to our lives, to get a greater picture of you. Amen. There are few sounds that a father likes to hear more at nighttime than his children giggling while reading a story. And a series of books that often did the tricks, the trick for my kids were the Amelia Bedelia books. Do you know those books? If you're not familiar, if you haven't read them, Amelia is a housemaid who takes everything that is said to her literally. 
She doesn't understand figures of speech. When she's told to dust the furniture, she goes and finds some dust and starts spreading it. When she is told to pitch a tent, she picks it up and carries it out in the woods, throws it, pitches it. And when she's asked to draw the drapes, what else is there but to get a sketch pad out and start drawing? It's funny to hear someone take literally what is meant as a figure of speech or hyperbole. And yet, sometimes it's hard for us as well. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we're not sure how literally we should take them. Now, I realize more often in our day, there is great doubt and disbelief in the scriptures. And people think of them as fiction, so it's not even a question of how literally to treat them. Or at best, people will say, whatever you find true is true for you. It's not true for me. But when we ask people who do believe in the scriptures, if they believe they are literally true, that's a hard question. It's kind of complicated. It depends on what you mean by the word literal. Because the answer is somewhat yes and no. Then there's, but a better answer is that there's a difference between literal and literalistic. Take John 10.9, where Jesus says, I am the door. A literalistic interpretation of that statement is that Jesus is made of wood and attached to a door frame by a hinge. That is the Amelia Bedelia method of biblical hermeneutics, understanding the text, right? But a literal understanding is that Jesus is the doorway or the person to come through to enter salvation and eternal life. And so while unlike critical scholars and skeptics of the Bible, we can say with confidence, I believe that Jesus literally turned water to wine. That Jesus literally cast out demons. Or that Jonah was literally swallowed by a great fish. I don't believe, think we have to believe literalistically, I don't know if that's a word, uh, Isaiah 55, 12, that says, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Right? If we're imagining the trees growing flesh and clapping, that's the literalistic interpretation. We cannot hold the Bible to a higher standard than we do when we read any other kind of literature. Poetry is meant to be read as poetry. History as history, prophecy as prophecy. Today's passage, as you heard, has several figures of speeches, speech, hyperboles, exaggerations that Jesus uses to make us understand how serious our sin is. It would be a mistake to take his commands here in a literalistic sense, right? But it would also be a mistake to ignore their truth. 
But at the same time, if we're not to take the drowning and the chopping off of limbs, literally, how far do we take the other parts? Are we truly to become like a child? Are we truly to leave the 99 and seek out the one? Is it all hyperbole? Are we to embrace some areas more than others? Let's wrestle with this text together. Um, And if we don't understand anything else about the text, we know that it starts with Jesus' exhortation for his followers to be like children. Verses 1 through 6. Read that again. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And I've always been curious. What drove the disciples to need to know who would be the greatest in the kingdom? If they were imagining heaven. I mean, I've just always sort of thought that God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit would be obviously the greatest in charge. And the rest of us who made it would just be so thankful we were there. But apparently, the disciples are anxious to find out there must be some kind of VIP status we can get. But I think as we read through the passage, we're not necessarily talking about heaven. Jesus brings us to the kingdom of heaven on earth, and more specifically, how he sees his church running. You see, chapter 18 that we've just started, and we've got two more sermons on it in the next couple of weeks. Chapter 18 seems to be Jesus's church leadership primer, or his book of church order, in a sense. Now, it's, it's not anywhere near as specific as, as where we usually go to find out about church leadership, church polity, how churches are run, which is Paul's pastoral epistles, right? First and Second Timothy and Titus. But it does seem like Jesus is using this question to then explain the nature of the church and preparing the disciples and those who come after them what it's going to look like to be a leader in the church. Uh, These verses cover the role of nurture and pastoral care, and the rest of the chapter will deal with conflict, repentance, and forgiveness. So Josh and James are starting officer training today. You better be taking notes. But everyone else needs to too because we're all part of the church and we all have our part to play. But the very starting point 
for leadership or greatness in the church is, in typical Jesus fashion, exactly the opposite of what the world would assume. Humility. Right? Wouldn't we normally think that being the most holy or being the most intellectually equipped to deal with the weighty matters of the faith or having the most charismatic personality or giving the most money, one of those surely should qualify us for greatness in the church, in the kingdom, right? Jesus turns everything around, says no. Those who are childlike in their trust, their dependence on God, who will humble themselves. I don't think Jesus is telling us to be childish or to abandon the good parts of being responsible adults. But to be childlike, to lose our self-sufficiency, our pride, our skills at manipulation and advancing ourselves. The more we humble ourselves, the more we earn the right to lead. And then the passage shifts in verse 5 from Jesus urging us to be like children to urging us to protect children. And I read a lot of commentaries that spent time talking about how, how vital church children's ministries are. Um, and this would be a great time for us to guilt you into signing up for the nursery or signing up to teach Sunday school or to explain our fantastic church child protection policy. We could use that about now. But I'm not sure that that quite captures what the text is about because here Jesus is saying that my followers are my children. And so I think he shifts. He's not necessarily talking about young people. He's talking about any of his children. Probably, mostly the new believers, the weak in the faith. But I think Jesus is applying it to all. Not that we shouldn't. I mean, there's, there are many applications here. But I think Jesus is targeting and telling us that every Christian believer is so precious to him that they are his children. And how much does Jesus love his children? Well, one of my great fears, I don't know about you, I've been on a couple cruises, and just imagining myself drowning in the middle of the ocean, that keeps me up at night sometimes. If you've seen the perfect storm, the very last pic, uh, scene of Mark Wahlberg just floating there, and you know he's just got an hour or two before he just drowns and dies. That is a great dread, and that is the picture of, uh, even worse, I mean, being weighted down and being forced to the bottom of the sea as you drown and collapse, your lungs collapse. Can Jesus make it any clearer that his children matter to him? I mean, it's just like one of us would say, I think about our children. 
You want to talk about me? You want to mess with me? Okay, fine, but you mess with one of my kids. It's not going to go so well for you. Jesus calls us to protect, to nurture, to build up one another in our faith. Yes, our children, our young children, but also all of God's children. We have a responsibility. Um, there's a troubling trend that I've noticed in our church and in the past. Um, and it, this may seem like a side route to you, but I think it maybe gets covered in this passage. And that's is that it's very easy for people who are strong and mature in their faith to opt out of participating in various events in the church because they feel like they don't really need it. They've already reached a good level of spiritual maturity. So maybe they don't need that men's retreat or that women's Bible study. Um, I, I remember being kind of told that, well, my kids are a little above that youth group thing and they're past the other kids in the youth group. They don't really need that anymore. And I would just challenge that line of thinking because it's exactly why we need you there. It's ex- we need you who are strong, and I'm granting that point to you because I think one of the indications that you're a strong believer is that you really care about the weak and the new believer. But I, so I'm granting that, okay, you're more mature, you have more knowledge, that's why we need you to show up. That's why we need you to love and to bring along the other believers. If we're all just going to church, the only reason is just for our own spiritual growth. I think we're missing God's call to love our Christian brothers and sisters, especially those those who are younger or newer in the faith. Now Jesus shifts from warning us against not protecting, not discipling, or leading astray others to when we lead ourselves astray. Look at verses 7 through 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, I've already explained, tipped my hand to how I believe this, these few verses should be understood. So I'll read Ron Rose's explanation of it from his book, What Did Jesus Mean? He says, I do not think Jesus is actually teaching self-mutilation, for even a blind man can lust 
and a man with no hands can yearn to steal. Remember, sin begins in the heart, Jeremiah 17, 9. Rather, I think Jesus is purposefully using very strong and graphic language to stress how utterly dangerous sin is and how it can lead to eternal condemnation. The hyperbole is used to emphasize the need for drastic action in dealing with sin. To keep from offending God with sin, radical changes are often necessary. Christians are to make no provision for temptation. Every occasion that may lead to sin is to be eliminated. But Jesus' point should be loud and clear that it's better to suffer now pain in this life than to suffer the great pain in eternity. We need to think about our sin and our lives from an eternal perspective. And if you really follow Jesus here, I mean, yes, He's asking us to take steps to cut, cut down our sin, but it, there's also the sense that it's going to be impossible. You don't have enough limbs to keep you from sin. They have to carry you around, right? And so it's, again, a great exaggeration, but to get us to understand the seriousness of our sin. We'll come back to that. I'm so glad that one of the most difficult passages on sin is followed by a passage that shows God's relentless love and His great care for each individual. Verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This, this passage is often taught from an evangelistic uh, context. And, and there's a good reason for that, because Luke chapter 15 presents almost the same story, but in a very different context. In Luke's version, uh, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who are grumbling about him eating with sinners. And so he puts almost the same story, but in the context of truly seeking out the lost. And his, the ending to that story is different than it is here in Matthew. He says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so... It's certainly more than legitimate to see this passage 
calling us to go out and find unbelievers and beckon them to find the truth of the gospel. But in this context, I think that Jesus is talking about someone who's already part of the fold. If we peek ahead to verses 15 through 20, and and next week's sermon will address that, we see Jesus giving the instructions on how to reconcile with a brother. How to confront someone in sin and, and to bring them to repentance. And just the whole context says that the sheep Jesus is talking about here is not necessarily an unbeliever but a lost person, but it's a straying Christian brother or sister. Ligon Duncan tells a great story of a man named Dr. Dupree Rain, who is the chairman of the fine arts division at Furman University. Very soon after he had retired, he found out that his son-in-law had had an affair and left his daughter. And he had left her in terrible financial shape with children to raise and basically just abandoned her. And so Dr. Rain had to unretire and make some money to help out. A year later, that son-in-law was diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer. Some of us have been around this kind of situation and it... I know it's easy to say, you know what? He got what he deserved, didn't he? Serves him right for what he did to his family. But you know the first person at his side was? It was his father-in-law. Not to scold him, not to berate him, but to minister to him. Calling him to repent and to turn back to Christ. Despite how poorly that man treated his family, how much he had hurt him, how he didn't deserve to be sought out, Dr. Rain followed God's model in seeking after the lost sheep. And his son-in-law repented, apologized, was somewhat restored before his death. Now, I've had the chance in the past few weeks to actually spend some time with either in person or talking on the phone with people that I would put in this straying believer category. And it's not easy. They're not real excited to be found. They're not dying to come back to the fold. It's a lot easier for me to call one of you up or have lunch with you. It's a lot easier when I know you want to hang out with me. But we have to model the great shepherd, don't we, who loves his sheep with such a strong passion for the lonely, the weak, the lost, that he would leave the rest of the flock for them. I need to model that. You need to model that. Thomas Long sums this up well. When the world looks at the church, 
It should not see not simply another social organization trying to raise money and keep its membership up. It should see a living embodiment of the kingdom of heaven, a community of faith where leaders serve instead of swagger, where the weak are nourished instead of cast aside, where people who lose their way are not forgotten but are sought and restored where people cultivate mercy and forgiveness as if they were the rare flower of heaven. I couldn't say it much better. Now, a theological question that, that pops up as I was reading this. Are we, are we guaranteed that every straying person will be brought back into the fold? No, I don't think there's any guarantee. Verse 12 says, if he finds it, right? And I know that it says that it's not the will of my Father that any of these little ones should perish. But there's more than one way to understand God's will in the Scriptures. Not to get too deep, but this is, I think, what theologians would call God's permissive will. What He desires to see happen. Just like a father would say, this is my will for you, son. Knowing they might not follow it. It can be broken. People violate God's will all the time. Not to be confused with God's sovereign will. What he declares will come to pass. And that is always fulfilled. But there is no promise. And yet, Jesus, you sense the excitement that he will rejoice when a straying brother or sister comes back, repents, comes back to the fold. Now, one of the most important points I want to make from this passage, looking at kind of all three sections, putting them together, is when we take the second section, verses 7 through 9, and then verses 10 through 14, and we use them to balance our understanding of how we should live. They represent, in my mind, the call to holiness and the call to mercy. And it looks a little something like this. Verses 7 through 9, we are commanded to be as holy as we can be, right? To take our sin utterly serious and to do what we can to avoid it. But then we are immediately reminded that when we do go astray, that the Father loves us and forgives us. It keeps us from despair when we can't keep, we can't live as holy as we're called to. But we also see the reverse. Because if we sort of live in the parable of the sheep and say, hey, you know what? I'm the sheep. I'm always going to get found. I can do whatever I want. Then we go back and remind ourselves how seriously God takes our sin. 
We can't be comfortable with our sin or unconcerned with doing good. We need the balance of Jesus' very strict teaching on staying away from sin and even the earlier admonishment not to lead others into sin combined with the reminder that we can't do it all right, that God loves and forgives us. It's so easy in the Christian life to fall into the trap of perfectionism and either despair or pride from our doing the right things and being holy. But it's just as easy to fall into the trap of cheap grace and believing that we're free to do whatever we want because we have a get-out-of-jail-free card. And yet Jesus wants to keep us balanced with a serious view of the danger and I mean the, the damage that our sin does, but also a great reminder of God's loving mercy and forgiveness. And when we think about how much Jesus gave up for our sin to keep us out of hell, it should completely humble us. You see, he didn't just give up his hand or his foot for our sin. He gave up his whole body in his death on the cross because he knew that was the way we could avoid punishment for our sins. His death allowed him to stand in as our substitute, taking all the punishment that should be ours the fires of hell, as the text says. His perfect record of righteousness is credited to us, and our ugly record of sin is credited to Him. And His death bought us, it redeemed us, it creates a holy people who are changed to be like Him. We're not perfect, but we are redeemed. And we show our gratitude for the one who sought us and bought us by modeling his love. By loving his children that he has placed around us and by seeking after the ones who stray with a love that beckons them back to the fold. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all those who literally believe that and rejoice in it said, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these challenging words. Thank you for the continued depth of teaching that we hear from the book of Matthew. And as we have moved into chapter 18, and Jesus seems to be laying out what his church should look like, 
May we be cut to the quick. May we go back to the basics, whether we've been Christians all our lives or have just come to know you in the last months, years. God, may we see that the entry point to your kingdom is to be like a child, to lay down our own pride and humility and resting on our accomplishments and just hold out our arms saying, Abba, Father. And may that childlike wonder and trust and belief in you lead us to love those around us. God, to teach us that our sins hurt ourselves and our fellow believers, that we are all body knit together, and when one hurts or falls, we all feel it. So give us the compassion to seek after the lost, even the the ones who stray, even when they tell us they don't want to be brought back. God, at the very least, bring us to our knees in prayer, But send us after them because we know that that is your way. That you seek and save. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Lord, you love your children. And we should love your children too. Show us areas of our lives where we resent our fellow believers, where we are callous to their hurts, where we're just tired of their struggles, or we think we think we're above them, and maybe someday they'll catch up to us. Lord, rebuke us when we believe that. And mostly, Lord, remind us that you love us so much that you died, that you gave up all so that we don't have to. We don't have to die for our own sins. We don't have to suffer the punishment for our sins because Jesus did. And let us live in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.